Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hello, this is the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I have a lovely guest with me. I'd like to introduce to you all Sophia Almansuri. Sophia, welcome. Tell us about your career and journey to compliance. Good morning, Mary, and thanks for the opportunity here today. Um, so my journey to compliance started quite early in my career. Shortly after I obtained my bachelor's in the U.S., I moved to Dubai, where I was hired by a U.S. company who had just settled with the SEC for improper payments to government officials in the Middle East and uh, also to Iraq under the UN Oil for Food program. So uh, having gone through this uh, proceeding, the company required the establishment of a legal and compliance division for their Middle East operations, and I quickly developed a liking to it. Uh, coming from a corrupt country myself, I suppose I found a purpose in fighting <laughs> corruption. <laughs> you know, mm. <laughs> unfortunately, you know, we have to say it how it is. Uh, so I, I, I developed a liking to it, you know, and uh, I found in it uh, a purpose, you know, to fight corruption and reduce poverty mm -hmm. with the name uh, to apply this best practice to my own country one day, uh, eventually. So um, that's how I started my journey. But uh, as I went on into my career, most of my roles were dual uh, legal compliance roles, which can be quite a difficult issue to balance uh, at times. Mm. You know, right. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I think you, you, you're familiar with, the yes. <laughs> with that. So due to certain conflicts between the two scopes, uh, I decided later on in my career that I was going to focus the rest of my career on uh, compliance, 300%. And what was it about compliance as opposed to the corporate commercial side of legal that appealed to you? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, you know, compliance had more of a, you know, I, I found more of a cause in it than, mm. than uh, you know, compliance mm -hmm. was, uh, for me, is, was a way to uphold the rule of law, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to, to enforce, obviously, the, the laws which society put into place. Rather, I mean, legal also, I'm not going to sit here and bash our legal colleagues. That's not mm -hmm. <laughs> my of aim course. at all. Yes. Uh, but uh, in compliance, I found more of a purpose, you know, a reason to, mm. to work every day, which uh, resonated with my own beliefs. Yeah, I think some consider it to be almost a calling, if you will. And um, and I, I hear that much more with compliance than I do with law. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, essentially, when I studied law, I had in mind to, I mean, I had in mind to, 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 to do the same thing. But I, mm. unfortunately, later on in my career, I, I found out that law, uh, especially commercial law, uh, could unfortunately assist into... Uh, concealing wrongdoing rather than mm -hmm. yeah. right the role of the defender in a Absolutely. company mm. Absolutely. so Sophia you originally hail from Morocco will you tell us about the development of anti-corruption in Morocco including some of the enforcement activity absolutely so you touch on a subject which is very close to my heart you know obviously Morocco is my home country mm -hmm. 
so if we may discuss the developments in Morocco for more than 15 years now, uh, Morocco has embarked on a complex process to fight uh, corruption. So it announced earlier this year its strategy to combat corruption and uh, the National Anti-Corruption Commission expects a radical change by 2021. 91 projects have been announced uh, for the upcoming two years with a very optimistic aim of raising uh, 17 places in uh, Transparency International's uh, Corruption Perception Index. Now, uh, on what has been done so far, uh, several actions have emerged, uh, both at the legislative and uh, regulatory level. So there's been the enactment of the INPPLC Act, there's been also enactment of whistleblower protection, both for public servants and citizens in general, uh, the Right of Access to Information Act, and uh, in parallel, it is also launching a strategy to fight money laundering. And this is just to name a few development. Uh, at citizen level, the government is aiming for uh, simplification of administrative procedures and uh, more and more awareness uh, raising campaigns for citizens and users. Uh, so in addition to all this, uh, a whole program has been dedicated to the private sector and uh, includes important measure, uh, including support for companies to adopt uh, anti-corruption compliance standards, recognizing the role and importance of the private sector and, uh, you know, obviously recognizing that the private sector represents an essential ally in the prevention and fight against corruption. Mm -hmm. um, so finally, uh, on the legislative level, Morocco is taking some uh, important steps to prepare the next amendments uh, of the penal code. Uh, which provisions uh, corporate crime, criminal liability for bribery and the criminalization of uh, illicit enrichment. And finally, on the enforcement front, we are starting to see more prosecution of uh, government officials, which I know is mm -hmm. <laughs> every, uh, what every compliance uh, officer is looking for. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, we are starting to see more of that. And uh, notably mayors, police, police officers, and uh, also judges. Mm. So enforcement has been recognized as a necessary measure for continuous improvement. Uh, we are not there yet, but Morocco is working really hard towards improvement. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And like me, you've lived and worked in the Middle East, um, but spent a lot longer than I did. And you traversed both Dubai and Abu Dhabi, although for, for those of you unfamiliar, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are pretty close. It was easy enough to head out to Abu Dhabi for a day trip, just kind of um, 45 minutes to an hour to, to head out there. When I was based in Dubai, uh, which was five years ago now, that time has gone so fast, uh, the compliance community was quite small and compliance jobs would come up fairly infrequently. Tell us, what is, what is it like out there these days, the, the compliance community and, um, and compliance as a whole? Well, um, so just like you, when I started my career uh, in the UAE a decade ago, uh, the compliance community was almost non-existent. Uh, to be honest, most compliance professionals were essentially legal professionals uh, or audit professionals, but no, no official denomination, you know, uh, of a compliance function. Uh, 
uh, except maybe in the banking sector or the pharmaceutical. Yeah. Now, uh, today, the UAE compliance community is thriving. There's a growing network of professionals who work for multinationals, banks, even local companies. I wouldn't say that compliance jobs are pouring today, <laughs> but we are certainly <laughs> starting to see we're start, we're certainly starting to see a sharp increase in demand for compliance professionals in the region, uh, mm. which is honestly quite satisfying. Yes, I agree. So thinking about um, some of the biggest risks that compliance officers in the Middle East are looking to protect their companies from, what can you share on that? Um, yes. So the Middle East is obviously concern, you know, it's, it's an area of concern. It's often considered a high-risk uh, region by multinationals. Um, outside from its uh, geopolitical risks, uh, compliance officers in the region would usually look at their third-party risks, you know, like any other regions, but perhaps more so in the Middle East uh, with regards mm-hmm. to agents, mm-hmm. distributors, resellers, etc. Yep. Uh, you know, with the Middle East being usually sales operations, you know, from big multinationals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you will have a lot more third-party risk uh, happening, uh, you know, in the region. Of course, uh, given that every company has a different risk profiles, some officers may focus on anti-bribery and corruption, some on conflicts of interest, some on export control issues, some on sanctions, some on money laundering. Uh, GDPR and data privacy have also grown in focus, uh, antitrust and competition for some. So it all depends on the industry and the exposure of the company, I suppose. Mm, so very similar key subject matter areas as for all of the other regions. Absolutely, absolutely. Very similar. Uh, I, I believe, you know, when multinationals uh, look to expand into the Middle East, you know, they, they bring with, with them their best practice and what they're looking to, to, to achieve on a compliance front, uh, you know. So they'll essentially export their either European or, or uh U.S. best practice, for example, to the Mm. region. What are some of the questions compliance officers living outside the Middle East but covering the region should be asking local staff to make sure that they're not missing anything in terms of cultural practices that they could be advising on in relation to compliance risk? So I think one of the biggest uh, ones for me would be the issue of bribery versus gift giving, which is very cultural Mm. in the region. Also, some other regions in Asia would have the similar. So um, that's something to be cognizant of. Uh, gift giving is a very cultural thing in the Middle East. Now, uh, the idea is to educate your business uh, well enough, you know, for them to 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 understand the difference between what is considered, uh, you know, a gift and what is considered. Uh, mm. A lavish gift <laughs> right. used for, for you know with the corrupt intent. Yes. So uh, that's that's number one for me. Uh, second mm-hmm. point for me would be perhaps the issue of who's considered a government official, mm. as per the definition of most anti-corruption regimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the Middle East is very particular in the sense that uh, chances are if you're dealing with the local national. Mm-hmm. Either they or a family member a member will be considered a government official. Um, so it's it's very hard to 
not be dealing with the government officials. Right. Although I must say this issue is more prevalent in the GCC, you know, in the Gulf countries than mm-hmm. uh, in the rest of the Middle East. Uh, you would find that more in uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, etc. I think that's right. Absolutely. Thank you for those tips. That's great. Uh, you write exceptionally good LinkedIn posts. I view them as bite-sized thought leadership. Share with us, what's your secret to writing a good LinkedIn post that adds value for your community? Thank you, Mary. Um, You know, I'm always pleasantly surprised at the commentary I'm getting on my posts. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very popular. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I did not aim to be popular, I mean, at all. Uh, Essentially, when I started started writing on LinkedIn a a couple of years ago, as perhaps to link a more isolated mm. compliance community to mm. Western best practice. Uh, I never intended uh, for the reach to go beyond that. Uh, but now that it has, you know, the secret is mm. really quite simple. Uh, number one, be transparent. And number two, be consistent. Uh, so uh, just to give you an idea, a majority of the posts that I share are actual insights from law firms or compliance providers. Uh, mm. I try to add a touch of personality to them, you know, sometimes humor to lighten the seriousness of the topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 15% of my posts will also cover something personal, such as, you know, what I'm doing with my career, quotes, uh, where I'm going in life, this sort of things, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, I suppose getting personal with your audience does give your post, you know, a more transparent touch. Um, mm. So that's that's very important. You must connect with your audience uh, mm. for you to have a following. Um, finally, being consistent is key. You know, uh, unfortunately, most people give up because they don't get too many views or comments when they start posting. Mm. Uh, I mean, even me, when I started posting, I had barely two likes or one like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, but everyone has to start from somewhere. You know, if if your goal is for your ideas to be heard, Mm. you must be consistent. Uh, Today you have one like, tomorrow you have two. In one year you have 10, etc. You know, you must be consistent. Yes, and um, it's funny that you mentioned that. I was just thinking, I think I woke up in the middle of the night and um, as I'm prone to do, I, I kind of check my emails, do a little bit of social media if I'm, you know, if it's 2 a.m. And just this this last night when I, I woke up, I saw um, a post of yours come up on my feed. I'd already commented on it. And um, it was at 153 likes, which is incredible. <laughs> and there was a lot of conversation in the... Um, in the thread itself. And don't get me wrong, we're not um, posting for, for getting likes, um, even though I think I'm of the Instagram generation and, and people are, you know, after followers and, and likes to, to plump themselves up. But what I mean by pointing that out is that you're getting a lot of engagement and um, the, the fact that your message is being heard and being appreciated and reaching uh, so many corners of the world, I just think is awesome. And it's very generous of you to keep being consistent. You know, it, it takes time and it takes effort. And that's a part of your day where you could be doing something else. So thank you for, for being so generous with sharing. Thank you, Mary. I think uh, in general, I think uh, and this is something which another compliance peer has mentioned in one of your earlier posts, or mm. earlier podcasts, sorry, uh, mm. 
we in general in the compliance community tend to be generous with with, with our best practice. Uh, mm. It's something which I have noticed. It's not simply me. I've simply followed the examples of, uh, you know, other peers and more senior peers and, and law firms and, and, mm. and other people who have been generous with their knowledge. And, uh, you know, we've simply followed their example and continue spreading the good word. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, let's move on to trade sanctions now. They're a really strong practice area of yours. Um, and those of you, uh, dear listener, you may remember listening to Gwen Hassan about the fundamentals of trade sanctions uh, last year. We spoke on that topic. So, Sophia, I'm going to ask you to please build on that conversation by highlighting some of the trending patterns you've been noticing recently in trade governance. Absolutely. Um, so we'll just start by saying that, uh, you know, the area of trade compliance and trade governance is, is extremely fluid and extremely dynamic. Um, so this year in particular has given uh, trade professionals much to keep up with. Um, so mm. for the past, yeah, the, the past 12 months have been extraordinarily busy for U.S. sanction policy in particular. Mm -hmm. Two main trends could be observed a sharp increase in targeted sanctions to achieve U.S. strategic uh, geopolitical goals, mm. okay? and several enforcement cases in a wide range of sectors that indicate that OFAC is setting higher standards for how companies uh, should conduct. These trends are further reinforced, obviously, by the OFAC framework, uh, which was published in May, uh, and that has set the expectations uh, of OFAC uh, in that regards. Now, uh, another another uh, development which has happened this year is uh, OFAC has made it mandatory for companies to report uh, blocked or rejected transactions to OFAC. Uh, and this is an area which was uh, historically only required from financial institutions. So that's a big change, uh, you know, for companies. Now, uh, with that said... Uh, the current uh, administration's uh, increasing reliance on sanctions to solve uh, foreign pol policy problems uh, is fueling concern uh, among uh, non-U.S. companies, you know, and it's, it's fueling concern that the United States is abusing its financial power and uh, prompting some governments and companies to seek ways to evade uh, U.S. measures or mm. alternative supply chains, you know, right. for example. The UIA case, you know, uh, I'm not sure I'm saying their name right, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, we have, uh, they, they were very vocal about it, you know, in advertising, mm. the fact that they're seeking new supply chains to, to uh, evade, obviously, uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, suppliers. Now, um, against this backdrop, you know, of uh, unilateral U.S. sanctions, Europe has announced some recent uh, initiatives, like, for example, INSTEX, mm. uh, which is a bartering mechanism. Uh, other countries like Russia and China also might, uh, all these countries might continue to try and create uh, alternative financing channels. Uh, so they are looking for ways, basically, to make payments uh, without the use of the U.S. dollar. So... Mm. These countries are successful at this, you know, this will add a new level of uh, legal complexity for anyone that's involved in trade compliance because uh, you're now stuck, you know, between a rock and a hard place, you know, mm. which 
do you follow? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think one of the most noteworthy developments, especially for anti-corruption professionals, is uh, is OFACT's activities under the Global Magnis- Magnitsky Act. Again, another name which I'm difficult to say. Magnitsky, I think that's how you say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, so there's been a sharp increase of of. Uh, OFAC sanctions under this act. Uh, These sanctions particularly target individuals, such as uh, foreign government officials, and Mm. their associated entities and assets also. Uh, They're targeted usually for corruption and abuse of power. Mm. So that's that's very noteworthy, you know, because, uh, I mean, just yesterday, to give you an example, OFAC marked the International Anti-Corruption Day uh, with the designation of 17 individuals and 29 entities across Europe, mm. Asia, America. Uh, that's that's a whole lot of people, you know, to session <laughs> in one day. Uh, yes. So, so that, I mean, that's, that's particularly uh, fascinating because uh, it opens entire new avenues, you know, in the fight against corruption. Absolutely. And... Um, marks the yeah. point, of course, that um, sanctions in particular is an area that can turn on a dime. You wake up one morning and there's so much work to do for, as a, a compliance professional or to just read and absorb um, because it can happen so very quickly. Absolutely. It happens very, very quickly. And uh, so uh, another trend that we're tr- starting to see is that uh, the, U- the EU is very inspired by the US model, it seems. And, um, you know, against this uh, sanctions, which I've just mentioned, the EU is actively working to develop uh, very mm. similar regimes. So yeah. very soon it's going to be... For, for almost every compliance professional, a, a reality which they cannot ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sophia, not only for your um, trade sanctions observations, um, but for taking the time to be with us. Lisa and I really appreciate it. And um, we were absolutely delighted to feature you today. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Lisa. Uh, very much appreciate uh, the opportunity today. Wonderful. Well, one final thought for today is um, as we go into 2020 now, um, wanted to share a piece of advice. Uh, so following on from uh, Lisa's episode and mine uh, at the end of last year where we discussed the best piece of advice we've ever been given. Another great piece of advice that I got when I was first starting out was to keep a log of all of the major projects and accomplishments that I worked on throughout the year so that when it came to performance review time, um, there was an easy reference point that you don't have to rack your brain trying to um, recall and remember um, what you'd done throughout the year. And uh, I encourage you to take this one step further. It's a great idea, um, what was told to me, and then how I've used it uh, as well going forward is to also apply that log for um, when you're job hunting. So when you're in the interview process and you get asked um, a question of, give me an example of when you, you've got this great um, history of 
your achievements and projects that you've worked on to be able to give great examples off the top of your head and not scrabble for something in what is already a fairly high pressure moment. And uh, again, one step further is to take the opportunity whilst you're thinking about and tracking your um, the things that you've done is to take uh, time to reflect on those projects and what you could have done better. Not only is that fantastic for yourself in terms of the self-awareness of being able to move forward and uh, develop yourself, but again, in the interview questions, when they ask you um, about situations that weren't so ideal and they ask you the question of what would you have done differently next time or um, how would you have approached it to mitigate some of the consequences Um, you've again got this really well thought out uh, response that you can give. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening in with us and look out for our next episode in a week's time. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.